Welcome to Warrington Bible Fellowship. Pastor John today is preaching from Luke 19, verses 28 through 48, and he's titled his sermon, Perpetual Motion. That's because our walk of faith is just that. It's a walk, and one that will last forever. Well, how do we see this in the events surrounding the triumphal entry? Be sure to like and subscribe to our channel and follow us on uh, whatever social media you found us on uh, so you won't miss a thing. God bless you. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in verses 28 through 48. And while you're, while you're turning there, let me tell you about an experience Kelly and I had when we were in Greece back in 2010. Um, we visited Thessaloniki. Uh, up in northern Greece, a large city. We were introduced to a guy that was going to take us around the city, really great guy. Uh, they lived in the middle of the city. We found his house, but it took us 45 minutes to find a place to park. Uh, I mean, cars are just, they're on the sidewalks. They're, they're double parked in the middle of the street. and There's just nowhere to park. And so we, we finally found a place. We had to walk two or three blocks to get back to uh, his apartment building. And we went in and met him and his wife. And he said, well, let's go out and tour the city. We go back downstairs, get in the car. And I'm driving down this side street in Thessaloniki. And it's a narrow side street to begin with. But there's cars on one side, cars on the other side, cars up on the sidewalk, and a little aisle right in the middle. And I'm driving down there, and we come to a cross street. And so I stop, and I start creeping out. And he's in the back. I go, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I, I can't see. He says, you've got to keep moving. I thought, but I can't see. He said, just go, go. And, and I, I, he said, you don't know how to drive in Greece. It didn't help that when I saw his car, it had all these dents. Okay. But when you got to the side street, you had to drive through whether you could see or not and just hope that nobody hit you. So our message for today is you need to keep moving. Now, last week we found out that we've got work to do, that there are actually things that we should desire to do as God invades our life and we begin to experience His grace. And so, and we have to be diligent to use what we have first, not under obligation, but as an appreciation of what God's done in our lives. So, this week we're going to see that our walk of faith, and anybody ever heard of our walk of faith? Okay, one of you have, that's good, that's good, yeah. We're going to hear that our walk of faith is a walk. Now, in order to take a walk, brothers and sisters, you got to put one foot in front of the other. You, you have to be in motion. And so we're going to find out that we, we have to be diligent to use what we have, but we are on a walk, and we're on a walk that will last forever. Now, one of the things that I hope to show you today, Diane and I were talking about a little bit earlier, John just brought it up, is that the Bible, the, 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 the way the Bible's written is absolutely incredible. 1,700 years it takes for this book to come together, 40 authors, at least three different languages, probably more, different cultures, different backgrounds, everything. And it tells one story. And it tells an incredible story. So when we read our Bibles, we've got to do a little bit more if we're going to get everything that we want out of it to then just read the words and try to absorb them and try to get through the, the passage that we're reading today. So I, I hope to be able to show you one, at least one of the things that you can see as you go through a passage in our passage here today. 
So this week we're going to see about our walk of faith. We're on a walk that's going to last forever. Sermon title is Perpetual Motion. Perpetual Motion. Our passage is divided up into uh, four sections, and I call them four steps towards the cross. We're watching Jesus come closer and closer to Jerusalem. Uh, Now he's upon it, and he's headed for the cross. So we're going to see a parade in verses 28 through 40. We'll see a prophecy in verses 41 through 44. We will then see a purification in 45 through 46. And, and lastly, we'll see a plot in 47 through 48. Notice that four Ps. I just love that stuff. <laughs> let's, take, let's take a look at this parade, starting with verse 28. Jesus is talking to his disciples And when he had said these things, verse 28, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now they're at Jericho. They're down by the Jordan River. It's maybe a little bit below sea level. Uh, The Dead Sea is far below sea level. Uh, They're about 20 miles from Jerusalem, but there's an elevation change between Jericho and Jerusalem, about 4,000 feet. So, you know, if you look on a map, Jericho's to the east of Jerusalem, you would say, oh, we're going over to Jerusalem, but they're going up because they know it's a climb. Yeah, it's it's about 20 miles, and it would take about six hours or so to walk, but Jesus's eyes are set upon Jerusalem. He is determined to go to Jerusalem. Verse 29, when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples. Now, you have the Mount of Olives. Olivet uh, is uh, just across from the Temple Mount. The Kidron Valley is in between. It sounds like a lot. You could almost throw a stone from one to the other. Uh, but uh, the Temple Mount is, is to the east of the Mount of Olives. There's a shallow valley in between. And uh, that side of the mountain, the Temple side of the mountain in the first century, had somewhere over 100 olive presses in it. The thing was filled with olive trees. There are graves there now. It's an honor to be uh, born, uh, to be buried in on the Mount of Olives if you're a Jew. Uh, there are graves there now, but it was it was olive groves all over the place. Just on the other side of the summit of that mountain is Bethany. Now they think Bethphage is somewhere very close to that. They're not quite sure. Uh, so he's on the Mount of Olives. Uh, he's been to these villages on his way to them, and he says. In verse 30, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Exactly what he told them to say. And so they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Now, I want you to notice a couple things. Jesus has incredible confidence over what's going to happen here, and particularly about the colt. He's confident that it's going to be where he says it is, that it's going to be tied up. That it's going to be a cult that has never had anybody ride on it before. And he's confident that these people are going to be asked and confident at what their answer should be. 
And he's also confident that the, the owners are going to allow this valuable colt, because it's never been written on before, to be taken. So, you know, there's a debate amongst biblical scholars. Was this prearranged or was it prophetic? We don't know. You know, I, I mean, if it, if it was prearranged, if Jesus had said, gee, I met this guy and he's got a, a donkey that he's saving for me, go in and get it, that's okay. It's okay. If it's prophetic, well, that's okay too. You know, there's nothing wrong with the miracle of prophecy. But what we need to see here is that Jesus isn't equivocating. Whether it was prearranged or not, he's confident the donkey's going to be there. He's confident it's going to be the right donkey. He's confident the owners are going to be in a position to say, yeah, well, okay, go ahead and take it. Nothing's happened to the donkey in the meantime. So on and so forth. He knows what's going to happen. So we have all this confidence, but we see the first hint of a note of purity. The donkey's never been written before, okay? So we not only have the purity of the donkey, we have the symbology of the donkey, and we'll get to that in just a second. But there, there's an echo that begins to rise up in here. Uh, so they put him on the donkey. He's going down the Mount of Olives. Now watch this. When the Roman governor would come into Jerusalem, he would come from the north. North of Jerusalem is a plateau called the Benjamin Plateau. Whenever anybody wanted to invade Jerusalem, they came from the north because it was the easiest way to get to the city. Jerusalem's built on all these hills and it's exposed only to the north. So when you and I hear, just as an aside, when you and I hear about Gog and Magog and these threats from the north, the Jews understand that completely. They're not thinking, oh, that must be Russia and China. They're thinking danger comes from the north. So when the Roman governor would come into the city, or when the Romans were attacking the city to take it over, they would come from the north and they would ride on a horse. So a king arriving at your city in particular in Jerusalem from the north, was a threat. If a king was coming in peace, he would ride a donkey. So Jesus is coming down the Mount of Olives from another village on a donkey. And he's headed for the eastern gate, not, none of the northern gates. So Jesus is telegraphing a message here. I'm riding on his donkey, it's never been ridden before. There's a, a, a note of purity here, and I'm coming in peace. This is not what everybody was expecting. So verse 36, and as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. These are the disciples. These are the people that follow him. And as he was drawing near, verse 37, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. Now again, we see the Mount of Olives mentioned again. This is significant because... This is not the last time we're going to hear about the Mount of Olives. Tradition tells us that the Jews believe that, that the Messiah will come down the Mount of Olives. Uh, tradition tells us that Jesus will return and come down the Mount of Olives. It seems going to be a little bit different when he comes back. No donkey. Horse. A white horse. And his robes are going to be dipped in blood with his army, all of his people behind him. And at that particular moment when he returns on a horse, the only question anybody's going to have to answer is which side of the horse are you on? Is he bearing down upon you with his army or are you part of his army? It's the only eternal question we have to answer. 
But for this time, in this passage, it says the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now these are God's people. These are the followers of Jesus, at least the ones that are faithful up to this point. And what they're doing is they're giving him a king's welcome. This is the way you would welcome the king into the city. Now you can see that if you want to write this down later on. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, between David and Solomon. Uh, Zechariah chapter 8. 2 Kings uh, chapter 9, verse 13. You see what a king's welcome looks like, and this is what they're doing with Jesus. Tacit recognition that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So notice that right here, the proper response of those who follow Jesus are praise and worship. Recognition of him as the king. And those, those who don't follow him, well, that's a different story. And we see that in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now you've got to watch your pronouns here. They're important. They address him as teacher. They know, they know that there are claims that he's the Messiah. So this is really kind of a slap in the face. They know that if he does indeed claim to be the Messiah, this could be real trouble with the Romans. And they've been getting increasingly negative with Jesus. They don't want the Romans upset. They don't want Jesus upsetting the apple cart. And now they're adding insult to everything. They're saying, you're not the Messiah. You're not our Savior. You need to get your disciples under control. And Jesus gives them a profound response. He says in verse 40, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now, I have a friend that taught on this passage many years ago. And he said, boy, that's just more significant than you think because there's archaeological evidence of everything Jesus did. And the stones cry out today. I like that teaching. I'll tell you what I like better. It's not just the disciples that recognize me as Messiah. It's all creation itself. The very ground that you're standing on recognizes me as Messiah. God created all this, and he sent me. And I can tell them to be quiet, but let me tell you something. All of creation will sing of my glory. You can't quiet that down. Actually, what happens is he says, you're telling me to get my disciples in line? You are the ones that need to get in line. You're the ones that are out of line. So then we, we see this as Jesus takes this step towards Jerusalem, as he takes this huge step towards the cross. There are two responses. There's praise and negativity. Now, it's not quite rejection yet, but the negativity is beginning to build, and we're getting close to it. Let's take a look at the prophecy in verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So he pauses about halfway down the Mount of Olives. We've been there, the place where traditionally they thought he paused. There's a little olive grove there. As a matter of fact, you can look through the trees and see the Temple Mount. And he knows, he knows what's going on, and he weeps. 
Now, keep this in mind. He's not weeping because he feels sorry for himself. He's not weeping, oh, I wish that, you know, there's something going on here that we need to understand. He knows he's going to be rejected. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows that he's going to be tortured. He knows that he's going into that city, which is less than a quarter mile away, to die. And he weeps, not out of self-pity, but out of grief for those who will reject him. I mean, don't we hear, oh, God would never be so cruel as to send somebody to hell. Here's God crying over the fact that there are people that are going to turn against him. He's grieving over their souls. He's grieving over the fact that they're going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. He's not happy. He's not gleeful. He mourns. Certainly not sorry for himself. So as Jesus takes another giant step towards the cross, we see that the proper response to rejection of the gospel is not anger. Watch this. It's not arrogance. It's not pride. It's not self-defense. It's sorrow. It's pity for those people who are godless. It's pity for those people who need Jesus. I've talked about it before. There are two types of people in the world. People who know Jesus and people who need Jesus. People who are in front of the horse and people who are behind the horse. So he weeps over the eternal fate of, of those who reject him. And then, and then he describes it. Watch this, verse 43. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now what Jesus is describing here is something different than we've experienced in recent history. He's talking about a siege on the city. The city would be surrounded, they'd cut off all the water, cut off all the food, and then wait for people to start starving. And verse 44 is a depiction of bodies strewn among the ruins of the city. The city is absolutely devastated. The entire city destroyed, particularly the temple. Now, this is significant because the, the focus of the Jewish faith was in the temple. That's where the sacrifices were made. That's where the sins were accounted for. That's where the priests were. That's where the genealogies were. The genealogies would affirm who the Messiah was. Everything is focused on the temple. And Jesus is saying, all that's going to be gone. And what this is, is a prophecy of the events of 70 AD. You know, somewhere around 66 AD or so, the, the, the Jews rise up and rebel against the Romans, and the Romans come in and sack the city completely. They kill 600,000 Jews in one day, and they take everything that's on the Temple Mount and push it off. And you can go there today and see all the stones stacked around the Temple Mount. There's nothing left. They have to chase uh, Herod down towards the Red Sea to Masada, and eventually kill him as well. See, and that, 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 that devastation 
I mean, it sounds harsh. It sounds like God is saying, oh, if you don't do this, I'm going to wreck your city. But let me tell you something. That level of devastation pales compared to the devastation that will occur on Judgment Day when people are consigned to eternal conscious torment forever. And what I'm saying is, if you think that's bad, where do you see what happens when Jesus comes back? Where do you see what happens to the people that turn on him? So the proper response to those who reject Jesus is sorrow, is grief over their souls, pity for them. So now let's take a look at this purification. Verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. And so here comes Jesus, and I, I'm sure there's more than one disciple that are behind him, and they're, they're putting the palm trees down and you know all this stuff, thinking, don't worry, when he gets to the city, everybody will realize and it'll be okay. And, and he enters the temple. And so there, there's incredible expectation. Those who don't like him want him thrown out of the temple. Those who are supporters of him want to see him unite with the leadership and take care of these dirty, rotten Romans. I mean, that's really what everybody expected, some sort of political, military victory. And what he does is he comes in and he starts throwing the Hebrews out of the temple. And you can see them going, well, 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 what's going on? And number one, he can. I, I, I mean, he can do it. He has the authority to do it. But he doesn't have to convince anybody. They go when he sends them. Now, we've heard about this incredible level of authority that Jesus has had. Now he's putting it on display. And he gets in there and the temple of the, the, the court of the Gentiles which is the larger section of the Temple Mount, was designed for people who were not Jewish to come in and hear the Word of God. How do we get to this point where Jesus is knocking over temples and, you know, one of the Gospels says he's got a whip. How do we get this point? Well, they commandeered the place of evangelism for their own purposes. Oh, it was good things, you know. They, you, they didn't want to taint the temple with Roman coins, so they had their own money system, and they wanted to make sure that the sacrifices were good and pure, so they were selling them right there in the court and everything. It was all done in the face of being proper, but there was no room for them to share their faith. And Jesus comes in and starts upsetting these these tables because listen carefully brothers and sisters because the Jews had started practicing a religion that was about them it was about them it was about them getting fulfilled in the practice of their faith it was about them having a, an exclusive place where they could meet and we weren't going to let they're not going to let all these other people in because we're, we're the people of God. And if you want to be a person of God, if you want to be a member of the family of God, you've got to be like us. You've got to be like us. Jesus wrecks that. 
He's driving out those who are sold. And, and you know, there was a, a charge given to Abraham. Genesis 12. Genesis 18, Genesis 26, that he was called to be a blessing to all the nations. He wasn't called to keep his faith, he was called to share it. Now granted, we're 2,000 years down the road, then perceptions have changed. And no doubt there were a lot of people going, well, you know that's so old-fashioned, that thing about Abraham. you got to understand, God's doing a new thing. Yeah. Yeah, the unchanging God doing a new thing. <laughs> and he says to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer. But you made it into a den of robbers. Now let me tell you how confident I am in what I just told you. Because when we talk about this, my house shall be a house of prayer, it's out of Isaiah chapter 56. It's a long passage. I want you to listen to it. Okay? Isaiah 56, starting with verse 3. Let not the foreigner who's enjoined himself to the Lord say... The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Don't let the foreigner say, I can't be part of the people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. I don't belong there either. Don't let them say that. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting home that shall not be cut off. Now, just hold right there because it just said you might not feel like you're a member of the family of God, but I'm going to make you a member of the family of God. Maybe more so than those who call themselves the sons of Abraham. And then verse 6, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain. This is where the temple's built. I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. And then the last verse, verse 8. Listen to this. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. That's our charge today. It hasn't changed. Now, this congregation, praise God, just reached deep into our community. And I am so thankful for that. But i got to tell you something. The church today, the church universal today, the evangelical church today is in danger of closing the gates to the Temple Mount. You can't come in here like that. You need, to, you need to change. You need to become more like us. Same mistake 2,000 years later. There's not even any room for the foreigners to enter into the Temple Mount. They've been shut out. And here's, here's why everybody's so amazed. This is the turning point in Jesus' ministry. This is where people want, wait a minute! Okay? And he, he wasn't coming to clean up the Romans. He's coming to clean up his own people. The problem was 
they didn't think they were dirty. We don't need this. And Jesus takes this third step towards the cross. We find the purification, brothers and sisters, comes to the church first. Doesn't scripture say that he will make his bride spotless? Doesn't say the bride is spotless. That he'll make his bride spotless. Jesus comes to purify his own. Well, this doesn't go over real well. So what we see next is the plot. And he was teaching daily in the temple, verse 47. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Now, the opposition activates. They start moving. And, and, and what we're going to see over the next couple passages, they, they keep on trying to trap him, keep on trying to draw him into a debate. Uh, a debate. They, they think they have uh, the upper hand. And, and there are three groups here. We see the chief priests, the scribes, and the principal religious leaders of the day. And they want to destroy D- Jesus. Make no mistake about what they want. They're not looking to ruin his reputation. They're not looking to discredit him. They want to kill him. Why? Because he's upsetting the apple cart. He's challenging the norm. He's going to make trouble with the Romans. Now, let me tell you why he's going to make trouble with the Romans. He's coming in as Messiah. People are calling him the king. The Romans believed that Caesar was divinely appointed by this pantheon of gods that they'd assembled over the entire Roman Empire. If God had made Caesar the king, who is this guy to say that he's the king? We need to go in there and fix this. So there was real danger involved here. How can Jesus be the king if Caesar's the king? And then in verse 48, we read it, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. And uh, anything that they would try to do would just make matters worse. Everybody believes what he's saying. They would just upset the people more. Facing the challenge could cause more problems with Rome. They're stuck. They're unable to move. So their solution is, let's just kill them and get them out of the way. So that we, we see that plotting against Christ, plotting against the church, causes those who are plotting to get stuck and unable to move. Now, they may look like they're moving, but as far as the kingdom of God is concerned, they're stuck in quicksand. So we've seen these four steps towards the cross. We've seen this incredible parade. Jesus is is moving towards the cross, and we see that the only appropriate response to him is praise and worship. We see the prophecy. The appropriate response to those who reject him is pity and grief and mourning. We saw the purification. Jesus intends to purify his bride, not the entire world. And we saw this plot. Those people who reject him, uh, they, they become mired in their, their own hate and their own anger. Isn't that what's happening to these leaders? They hate him so much, they're stuck over how do we get rid of him. So we should be careful not to get mired as well. So what, is, what does all that have to do with perpetual motion? How, do, how does that fit in here? Well, the passage... The, the predominant theme of the passage is movement. Watch this. Verse 28, he went on ahead. Verse 29, he drew near. He sent. Verse 30, go into the village. 
Verse 32, those who were sent went. Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus. Verse 36, he, as he rode along. Verse 37, as he drew near, already on the way down the side of the mountain. Verse 41, when he drew near. Verse 43, the days will come upon you. Verse 45, he entered the temple and began to drive out. That's an incredible amount of movement in, in a relatively compact passage. Now, all this is designed by, by Luke inspired by the Holy Spirit to create tension as Jesus nears the cross. And you see this type of activity amps up the closer and closer he gets to to the festival. So Luke wants us to see Jesus moving. And he wants us to see the people around him moving. He's been telling them for some time now that he's going to Jerusalem and nothing's going to stop him. He's going to keep moving. He's going to get nearer with each step. Now, what does that have to do with you and me? It's kind of interesting that we see this movement, but how does it impact us? Watch this. Jesus in his last hours carries the cross to Golgotha. And we know that agonizing scene on the, the Via Della Rosa. We know how bad it is. And, and those become his final steps towards the cross. He's actually got it on his back. Now, maybe if we understand what's happening there, we will see something he said in a little bit of a different light. Because in Luke 9, he said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Where is he going? He wants us to follow him. Where is he headed? To the cross, to the place of sacrifice, to the place where he yields up all of his desires in exchange for God's will. He's showing us how it's done. Why? Because beyond the cross is glory. <laughs> beyond the cross is eternal life. Beyond the cross is eternal bliss and peace and happiness. It's not just the cross. It's the resurrection. He wants us to follow him to the cross and then follow him into a new life. Eternal presence with God. He said, follow me. Watch what I do. Do what I do. I'm going to have intimacy with the Father. And I'm going to show you how this is done after I come out of the tomb. God's going to take me up physically and put me on his right hand. You're going there too. He also said this in his high priestly prayer, John 17. He's praying to God. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. We already have that glory. Do you feel that way today? That's what God says about you if you believe in Jesus Christ. He's given us his glory. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, 
that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. What Jesus is describing here is the church. He's describing those who believe in him. Perfectly becoming one with him. Now watch this. That perfectly becoming one is a present active verb. It's continuous action going on and on. In this case, it goes on for all eternity. We are and will be eternally becoming one. Eternally getting closer and closer to Jesus Christ. I know that's unimaginable. But we've talked before. Heaven isn't about sitting on a cloud playing a funny looking instrument. Heaven is about eternally becoming closer and closer to God eternally knowing more and more about him, eternally moving towards God and his glory. It's perpetual motion. We have ideas and imaginations about perpetual motion, but they're based on the world that we see. The idea of perpetual motion is, is negated because there's no such thing as an, uh, uh, an impossibly uh, deleted power source. But we will be fueled by the inexhaustible energy of the Holy Spirit. Drawing us to God, molding us into his image. For now, we're called to do as those disciples did. We praise him, we worship him, we constantly move towards him. As a way of preparing to do so, we do this because we're going to be doing it for all eternity. We're practicing for eternity. So we strive after him. We move towards him. We do the things that he's called us to do, and we keep on doing it. My guy in the back seat said, you got to keep on moving. I didn't understand what he was saying. And he said, he shouted, if you don't keep on moving, we're going to be stuck here forever. The Pharisees and the religious leaders stopped moving. And they got stuck there forever. We need to be diligent to do the things that we're called to do. To participate in evangelism. To read our Bibles. To pray. You know what? We're not going to be perfect at all times. We're going to stumble. We're going to drop the ball. We're not always going to be moving towards him. Thank God for his grace. Thank God that the work that was needed to bring us into this perpetual motion towards God was completed on the cross. When Jesus said it's finished. I'm looking forward to that. I hope you are too. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your grace. We give you thanks for your mercy. We give you thanks for the clear teaching your son never stopped moving towards the cross and the understanding that he never stopped moving towards your glory. Lord, the cross was in the path, but it wasn't the final destination. The final destination was with you in eternity and he's promised to take us there, Father. Oh, we give you thanks and appreciation, Father. We pray that you'd make us diligent to be those people that we're called to be. And we pray this in the name of of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who did it all for us. Amen. Amen. Hey, thank you for coming. Thank you for tuning in today. We'll be back again next week. Hmm.